Hi, John. How's it going? Good. Episode three. Yeah, I feel like we're sort of, we're, we're in some kind of groove and that's good. I think so. I definitely feel feel that. We've been getting very helpful feedback from people now on you know, the audio quality, uh, the content. People are starting to get an idea of how this could be helpful for them. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah. So for today's episode, we did something interesting. We, we put out a poll on Twitter. And so we got a response for what people wanted to listen to because we had a few topics on mind. And I was actually surprised at the proportion of the votes. I thought it'd be kind of close for each of them, but there was a clear winner. We couldn't have planned it better, I think, in some ways, because <laughs> we're, you know, the topic that emerged was the, the overlap between design and product management. And, right. and I, we promise we didn't plan this, but, but Tark especially, I mean, both of us have actually done product and design roles, like me as a UX researcher in product and Tark as a designer, product manager, and engineer. So we, we, we actually feel particularly well-suited to at least grapple with this one. Yeah, I mean, at the least, we can just talk about our experiences and why we decided to kind of go in the directions we did. Yep. You know, I I think I actually have never even heard th- your story. Mm. So let's start there maybe. Like, I know you've worn these different hats, but like, what's, what's your story? How did you end up doing all these things? Uh... <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't think my story is that interesting of one. Um, but yeah, I guess, I mean, growing up, I was always interested in really design, product, and engineering. I just didn't realize there were different things. I would just code stuff. So, you know, when my friends were getting part-time jobs at McDonald's, I was making money, you know, making websites for local entrepreneurs. So I made websites for some of my teachers that were freelance makeup artists, another teacher ran his own rock climbing company. So it was a great kind of side hustle, as they call them today. Um, And so then I thought, you know, naturally, I should become an engineer. It just, it seemed obvious to me, because I liked building things. I didn't realize, you know, there was a difference. You know, there was a very specific moment where I realized design was something you had to at least think about. I had this game I made called Mango Catcher. And so a character runs left and right on the screen catching mangoes. This was a Flash game back in the day. I'm really dating myself, but back in the day, Flash games were all the rage. I'm sure you remember Flash games. Yeah, action script. Right, yes. And so <laughs> and so I, uh, I made this game called Mango Catcher, and you're catching mangoes. And so I, I designed each mango to be slightly different because I noticed if all the mangoes looked the same, it kind of didn't look real this cartoon character. And so I did the graphics, I, I, I coded the logic, um, and I put it kind of all together. It was, you know, just all me. And so when I showed it to my friends, I noticed they would avoid kind of the greenish looking mango. And I asked them about it and they're like, oh, right, because that's, that's not a right mango. Uh, that's less points. And in reality, that, I mean, that was not true, right? Because I coded it myself, but each mango was the same points. And I remember just having that moment being like, oh, wow, you know, the design has an direct impact on the product and what people think of it. And so anyways, um, you know, I, I did college. I, I was very lucky to be at a school that had a lot of internship programs. I went to the University of Waterloo in Canada, uh, which is well known to be an engineering school. Um, I got to work at Research in Motion at Amazon. And, you know, these internships, you're not 
carrying the coffee, you're, you're doing real work. Like I remember the work I did for the Amazon Prime team. Every time someone from Canada ordered anything through Prime, it would run through my code at one point. And so, you know, I was doing production level code and it really gave me kind of a taste of engineering. Each internship, I got to try something new. And so I was very intentional about saying, hey, I really like this, but maybe this thing is kind of what's really for me. And then at every turn, you know, it wasn't really what I wanted. And so, uh, you know, first I was a backend engineer and then, um, you know, I was a frontend engineer and then I was on the UI team, um, you know, and so I was very lucky to try those different things. And I realized, you know, I just wasn't passionate about coding. You know, coding is one of those things where I saw the best developers, the best engineers on my team, they would look up open source libraries and have opinions of them, you know, in their spare time. And I like building things, but I didn't like the science behind computer science. And so anyways, long story short, after, after college, I did my own startup, uh, successfully burned that into the ground. Uh, it was an iPad. Uh, it was an iPad app company where we were trying to build iPad apps and do client work, which spoiler alert, never works. <laughs> you can either be an agency or your own shop. It's very hard to do both. I respect anyone who can pull that off. Um, just because clients kind of consume all of your time. And so we did launch one of our own products. It was a music player for iPad. Um, they got pretty good reception, uh, but overall the, the the company just didn't have legs. And so again, at that role, I was designing, coding. Um, I guess I was a CEO, so I was also managing. You know, we were only a team of three, but you know, I had to think about payroll and, and those things. And so I was just tired and exhausted and it wasn't working out. And a few friends reached out who are starting a voice assistant company. And this was before Siri had launched. So chatbots and NLP was not something people talked about. And so I took that opportunity as a UX lead. I led kind of the user experience at a company called Maluba that did this voice assistant software. And then over time, we realized it was hard to make into a real product. And so we pivoted into becoming a B2B company, licensing our technology. And so that's when I pivoted from design into becoming a product manager because it didn't make sense for you know me to focus on design at that time. It was much better for me to work with clients to figure out how we could design an API for them, how we can design our technology to fit with theirs. And at the end of kind of that stint at Maluba, I made an explicit decision to go back to design uh, for a number of reasons. But one of the main ones just being that there were so many cool things happening. You know, prototyping tools like Framer were just taking off and designers were, you know, getting much more involved in the product process. And I felt that if I didn't go back now, I would never be able to go back. And so, yeah. And so then that brought me to Amplitude. And so, uh, you know, I've been, at, I've been now a full-time designer at Amplitude for almost four years. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm happy with, with the change uh, for myself. But yeah, I've got to kind of dip my toe into engineering, product, and design. That was a long answer. I don't think anyone wants to, to hear all of that. Who knows? We'll find out. We'll find yeah. out if, if everyone has bailed <laughs> at, at, at minute number 10 or something like that. I, I found that extremely interesting. What I found super interesting about that is that you know, there's there's the happy path that people imagine people take into this business. Yet, the more people I talk to, the more completely kind of circuitous and varied, interesting stories with people trying to wear a bunch of different hats and trying things right. and not liking it and then going back to it again. And, you know, I've kind of 
taken a little bit of that too. I had a startup and I tried product management stuff and UX research stuff back to product management stuff. Uh, now the kind of coaching things I'm doing. So it's always a good reminder, you know, when people try to draw these hard boundaries between these disciplines, it's always a good reminder <laughs> that a lot of the people who are engaged in these disciplines are they themselves kind of shapeshifters and doing a different thing. So, so the boundaries can't be all that uh, rigid if people are always jumping around between them, or at least some percentage of people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had thought I was kind of unique in this way that, you know, I just could never figure out what I wanted to be. And then you start meeting people and hearing their backstories. It's like, oh, you got an engineering degree and you're, you're a designer. Or, you know, just recently we had a customer success manager uh, pivot into design and she kind of spent a year long uh, figuring out how that would look. And now she's a full-time designer. And so now it's almost more common that I hear, especially PMs, um, but, but also a lot of designers not have a traditional education into their roles. Now that almost feels more common than the other way around. Are you finding that as well? You know, kind of, I don't know, it's hard. I, I can't really grapple with the the data and information I'm getting. I certainly see some areas where people, you know, they did this very sort of rigorous uh, HCI or, um, you know, human factors, or they, they went to it. There's a, you know, sort of set number of schools for folks who want to kind of do a certain type of education in UX, for example, um, or design. And so I definitely see those people, but it's really, I, my gut says that that as a percentage versus all the other people who have just sort of tried a number of things, um, you know, it's kind of hard to weigh those two because because I know just how many people have kind of tried a bunch of these different hats. I think one thing that I am seeing out there, and, and, and I have to admit it kind of saddens me a little bit, is I see UX folks get so frustrated because they feel they can't really impact the product they, the way they want to actually transition to product management, not because they think product management looks particularly interesting to them but primarily because they're so passionate about like the quality of the product that they're producing, that having that level of control and influence is the only way that they can think to get that level of control and influence. And I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that because my gut instinct is, well, let's solve the problem. The problem is, is that your, your PMs are control freaks, you know, or something, right? Like, why aren't they partnering with you more? And so I, I don't know if you've observed some of that, but that's something that's kind of gotten me pretty curious. Like, I wonder if that's a, a good strategy for right now and that maybe they'll go back into design in a couple of years as things have kind of maybe become more collaborative in their environments. I just don't know. Yeah, I've seen that a lot. And it's just like you describe. People get frustrated and they want more say. And they think the best way to do that is become the PM themselves. You know, I think it's one of those classic problems where you don't know what you don't know. And so this is definitely not a rule by any means. But some people I've seen in these situations, it's because they haven't seen other working styles. Or maybe they've seen a few companies, um, but they all work the same. And so you don't realize that designers can do more. In healthy cultures, designers do get a lot of the decision making or you know, as people say, they get a seat at the table, right? That's a classic designer conversation. The designer should have the seat at, at the table. Um, a lot of the healthy teams I've seen 
there isn't really a table. <laughs> you know, there's no table where or meeting where people go to make all the important decisions and designers aren't involved. You know, it's kind of a more fluid process where everyone's involved at different touch points. And so, you know, my internships, I, I feel very lucky because I saw a lot of good cultures and I saw a lot of bad cultures. And that made me realize that there's actually a lot in between. One thing that that I'm reminded of is that I remember working at a company that had a pretty evolved UX practice and and also engineers were really expected to get really involved and reach out to customers and really take that seriously. And what I observed in that particular setting is that the teams could pretty much run with things for an extended period of time without any real product manager involvement in the sense that the teams were pretty self-sufficient in terms of their kind of product management, UX, and and engineering capabilities. And it it was a very interesting uh, realization in that particular company because you would get an engineer saying, you know what, I, I don't really know what our product manager continues to try to do here. They gave us the problem or they gave us the opportunity and we were making a lot of progress towards it. And so I, I found that pretty interesting. And I would say it's kind of symptomatic of what I'm seeing out there that a lot of companies have no product function whatsoever, and it's just dysfunctional and toxic. And then, so their first call to call to arms is to kind of get a product management practice in their company. So they bring in these product managers and they get their seat at the table and all that kind of stuff. And then they start to spread product thinking across the organization and then before you know it, in a year or two or three, like that's been very successful. And the whole organization has kind of in, in internalized product thinking and product practices, et cetera, which then kind of puts reverse pressure back on product to like, what are you doing now? You know, you're not here to just hurt us to get the feature factory going. Are you bringing valuable context to the table? You know, if, if the team controlled the budget, would they hire you as a product manager? So the dynamic is really interesting out there right now, as, as especially as, as designers are getting called into kind of doing, it, it's always funny to me that like people imagine, you know, d- design is just there to put some pixels together or to do a mock-up or a wireframe. Yet I would say that like 50% or, of, or more of design is just grappling and researching and understanding the problem. So they've trained in that skill. So why not let them dig into the problem instead of this very rigid problem-solution dichotomy? So I don't know. Things are changing out there. The, the, the overlap is real. Totally. I see that a lot. And like you said, it's hard to know who's responsible for what. You know, at a high level, when I get asked about this, the advice I give as a good PM, as a good designer, you shouldn't necessarily need these hard checkpoints or check-ins when, hey, let's make sure the designer approves of this or the PM approves of this. If you're doing your job really well, people will pull you in because they know, hey, if I don't get that PM's advice, I'll make a worse decision and vice versa, right? There are a lot of situations where product manager is making a very specific design decision, whether that's a service design decision around how the product will work, maybe even outside of the software, or it's a design decision of, you know, a small bug fix. And so the best designers I've seen, the PMs go to them, not because they have to, but because they're convinced they'll give thoughtful feedback. 
And so, you know, at a high level, I think that will always exist regardless of the role. You want to be influential in a way where people value your feedback. You want to give that feedback in a way where people want it. It's not just mic drops. It's not just this, you know, aura of knowledge, but it's, you know, very collaborative feedback. I'm reading a book right now called Multipliers. It talks about how ways people can have teams where each person multiplies each other's overall output contribution to the team. Um, It's kind of funny. I didn't realize how that related to the whole 10x engineer thing. But, (laughs) um, you know, one, one really interesting part of the book is this idea of unintended diminishers, where you can diminish other people's effort or contribution, even when you have the right intentions. So if you're intending to have good impact on the team, but by the way you do it can diminish others. I've seen that all the time with designers where highly skilled designers aren't actually highly effective. And so ultimately, you know, regardless of roles or check-ins, you know, the best teams I've seen, they kind of surpass those definitions and they just work really well together because they want to bring each other in because they know they'll get valuable input. The way, you know, it's funny, I think you showed me an image, we can actually share it of like a, from a former employer of mine, actually. Um, and it's this kind of Venn diagram. And and what I thought was really funny is that within two seconds, we were like, yeah, yeah, oh, but no, but oh, product. I think one example was great. You said something like, oh, well, product it can get pretty good at journey mapping too. And it, and it really occurred to me, I'm like, right. oh yeah, you know, this is not just one direction here, right? This is not just like engineers and designers learning product and like designers learning product. This is also happening in the reverse direction. The funny, funny point is I, I feel I kind of hacked my way into my UX research job, but one of the reasons why I think I was able to get that job is that so much of it, so much of the systems thinking and the questioning and the, the kind of research ideas and and framing was very familiar to me as a product manager. And the techniques, the tools that I used to, to execute were different in some ways, but the systems thinking and the curiosity and the questions were actually the same that I was very familiar with. So... I feel like I hacked my way into it because I just needed to like understand how to execute on that particular tool or technique versus having to start from scratch. So, you know, that's an example there too, where suddenly you go into these rooms and suddenly product is like facilitating a a customer journey mapping activity. And, you know, the designer there's kind of steaming a little bit because they're like, oh, oh, wait a second. I I thought this was my glory moment, you know, like I'm supposed to facilitate this, but I, th- I think it is interesting. It's moving in all directions. Another thing that this brings up to me is that I think that with software as a service and these kind of, um, I- I've bandied about on Twitter, this idea of continuous design, which is the idea that like engineering is not shipping anything. This is not like a cash on delivery shipment that you can return. It's literally like a continuous offering of new capabilities where you disrupt yourself, you add capabilities, you tweak what you're doing. Your goal is to make a human being out there in the world great at what they're doing, either in B2B or B2C or wherever. And so what I think is fascinating is that we we didn't really talk about it yet, but the degree to which how we deliver products also relates to how these roles collaborate. Because when you look at a traditional product manager job description and you look at like new product introduction and the product life cycle and the phase gate stage delivery, 
all those things are contingent on new product introduction or the idea of like you're shipping a thing. They're all very like legacy um, perceptions of how product happens. Now, when you strip all that away, you get something really, really interesting. It's much more like kind of like a continuous co-design activity from everyone on the team. So I find that super fascinating. Totally. And it's, I think it's always been there, but now it's more apparent. I mean, you know, as a company Amplitude, we, we often say that customers now have unlimited choice, right? And so the reason you, you should get product analytics and understand user behavior is because unlike, you know, unlike the past where you would buy one entire product suite and it was really hard to manage IT and install new software, now people can have new tools installed overnight. You know, if you look at Slack's adoption and how quick that was. And so it might not be true for every tool. And, you know, there are some differences in B2C. I think customers do have so much more choice. And so you start competing on user experience almost for every product. And so to your point about kind of continuous design, I think as, you know, subscription software and design in general become, you know, really big parts of product development that absolutely will become a part of, you know, how PMs and designers think about making their products. You know, it's interesting because I was talking to a design leader in the last couple of days. And I think that we have to admit that a little bit of the reality, which is back to that idea of people, you know, designers feeling a little frustrated, but she was talking about just the sheer momentum of the feature factory in their company. And even with product analytics, you know, they're, they're, people just would jump to conclusions and they wouldn't, they wouldn't make time for really deep research. They wouldn't make time for, um, you know, different, really trying to understand what the evidence said. Like it was just, there was a lot of confirmation bias and a lot of momentum there. What I found interesting about uh, her perspective on this was that I started to see these bright spots that like, no, it, it wasn't perfect but they were starting to create opportunities to start together as a team. They were starting to engage people in kind of continuous research. They were starting to let the teams understand that, that velocity of output is not really what you're looking for. You really want like velocity of learning or velocity of creating value for your customers. So even though, I mean, she had been doing this for a long time, even though she realized that things weren't perfect by any means, she realized that they were making steps in the right direction. And so I think about this kind of overlap thing is that if you think, you know, your company is just completely backwards in this and they're never going to figure it out, you know, it, it is a progression that takes time, but it, often it's about these kind of small wins about people working more closely together. Do you think that's inevitable? Do you think people will pick up on that as product matures? My, my general take on it at the moment is that it, you know, at this very moment, there's companies working like it's 1998 and like it's 2018 or whatever, 1999 and 2019. In some industries, people are working like it's 2004 and their competitors are working like it's 2002. So there's not really a burning fire yet, right? But their disruptors, the people who could potentially disrupt them but haven't yet are working like it's 2018 and 2019. So I think that what you're going to see is you're going to just see competition um, slowly eat away at these. And, and these very sort of um, intractable type of 
businesses that just seem to like not be able to modernize like some aspects of healthcare and some aspects of banking and things. I mean, even in banking, just the other day, I was on a call with a kind of legacy bank that's adopting new ways of working and trying to get product thinking going in their organization and doing that. So I think that what's inevitable is that you'll need to figure this out eventually based on your context. And if you don't, you probably won't be around. <laughs> uh, and that sounds pretty harsh, but I think that, but one thing to be very clear, I mean, if you took the, take the Bay Area, what I think is kind of fascinating about the Bay Area is it is not necessarily, you can't just, uh, you know, throw a rock in the Bay Area and find B2B teams, especially that are working in cutting edge ways. A lot of them are still working with, you know, kind of design upstream. A lot of them are segmenting engineering and design and product. Um, a lot of the traditional Bay Area management practices kind of encourage silos instead of encourage cross-functional development. And a lot of the ways that they work, you know, value PMs in kind of pitch fetishism, I call. Like as if the PM has a great idea, that's what you work on. So it's not necessarily even that in California in the Bay Area, the best, the, you know, the most interesting ways of working are being practiced. So I wouldn't want people to think that we're so like Bay Area centric. We think it's everything for, you know, everything for everyone. Uh, but if you scan the world, you start to see all these kind of really interesting ways of working emerging. I think that's a really important point, especially around kind of how, especially around the different journeys different companies are. It's not an equal race. Some people are really behind in some ways, whether that's product, design, engineering. Some teams are you know, better in other ways. There's some companies that you might think are super modern, but that might be just one or two teams. They might be on legacy hardware, legacy software, or their design practices might be behind. We have a unique view of that at Amplitude. I, I feel like so lucky to see it, but sometimes it also becomes like pulling the wool like pulling the 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 wool off of the industry, <laughs> right? Yeah, when we're talking that. to a customer and you're kind of like, oh, now they, I've read their blog post. They totally have this figured out. And then I'm in the meeting and I'm like, no, I feel a lot more hu human now and that they're human. Like, no, they haven't. This is really hard. <laughs> totally. I was at a partner call the other day where we were sharing our design practices for using data. Uh, you know, there's that presentation I give to design teams at our customers. And so I was, I was giving this presentation to a partner and they're a data visualization company essentially. And I just assumed they were data driven, but I started to realize none of their PMs really use data to make decisions. And so that totally resonates with what you're saying here. Um, it, it also ties into something I said earlier that, you know, I'm, I'm very happy now as a designer, but I'll tell you, I would not be happy as a designer at every company. And, you know, there's a lot of companies right now, I'd be very happy as a PM, but not every company either. And so it's about finding, you know, what you're looking for, not in the role necessarily, but how, you know, the role plays out at that org. That's a huge point when I talk to people looking for jobs. And I really encourage them to ask the hard questions or try to network and figure out how the teams actually work. Some places have a very mature design practice, but it's a siloed design practice, right? Design does their thing, product does their thing in engineering. Now, maybe that's your thing, but you, you have to learn about that. 
And sometimes people want to be in the thick of it and be kind of ground floor and on the team and they want it to all feel like it's a big messy overlap and that's their thing. And you you really need to ask the questions that determine that. And what's really fascinating to me is in a lot of the interview process, it's very much about like, you know, I, you know, people often forget to ask those questions that, that um, dig out the things that will really matter in your day-to-day work life. <laughs> and, and often those things are very almost m- mundane practices and approaches and, and meetings and things like that. That's actually makes a big difference. So it's something for people to keep in mind. One thing, one thing I want, thinking about our topic, I, I'm interested to hear your thoughts uh, in the sense that, so we talked about this sort of Venn diagram. We sort of laughed at it because it just seems like this kind of very nebulous thing. Now you've done all these things. Do you feel that there's things that are uniquely product manager things that you can think of uh, at all that are just them? Yeah, absolutely. I think when you read the title product manager, there's a lot of work being a manager. And so a designer isn't necessarily doing management-like things. Some of those are purely admin tasks, like setting up meetings, making sure you have all of the tools and processes set up. And so there's definitely some aspects of management that you don't do as a designer. Um, But like we were saying, there's a lot of overlap in actually participating in the tasks. I think that's, that's actually an important difference. So it's one thing to say now both PMs and designers participate on almost all the same things. So another thing to say that they do the same work on that thing. So so let's go back to this overlap. I have it open right here. We'll post this. Uh, we'll post this to the show notes so people have access. We realized to- I'd written a blog post called the overlap after we set this up. So then I remembered. Oh I right, think. yeah. You you have a you have an article that goes through this too. You're right? talking about something different. Yeah, we're going to post the links to everything. So that, that's yes, fine. yes, because there's a lot to read here, and we certainly won't get through all of this in a podcast. But hopefully, we'll kind of set the perspective correctly for kind of modern day teams and product development processes that we've seen now at around hundreds of companies. Like how many companies have you talked to, John, just in the last three months? Hundreds. Hundreds. It, it, yeah. Just past three months, it's probably a hundred. I mean, it's, it's it's a lot per week, but I mean, you you don't get super deep with them, but you start to you start to see these patterns. Sure. And so this this diagram, what it shows is kind of what it was like before and what it is now. And so the first phase, the only overlap between a PM and designer is use case definition and user research. But then the animation of the Venn diagram kind of closes in and it's you know supposedly showing you what they overlap with today. And so you start seeing UI sketching, usability testing, prototyping, backlog management, KPI monitoring. So you know the author is arguing that these things now overlap. But now all of the things they have that don't overlap, those things do as well. So for example, on the PM side that doesn't overlap, data analysis. Designers are doing that more and more with product analytics tools. I've seen sometimes it seems like those are the folks that actually care the most about it because they really, really care about the user experience. So they're doing a lot of the analysis. Yes. A lot of the teams we work with, you know, this presentation I mentioned that I give around, uh, you know, using data and analytics effectively for every designer, they're using it all through the design lifecycle. And so sometimes you see designers using analytics more than PMs, like you mentioned. And so some of the other things here that's, you know, doesn't overlap in, in this author's view, product market fit, customer discovery, road mapping, MVP experiments, 
And again, all of these things. I'm just running out of ideas of any of that stuff that doesn't like that design actually doesn't bring hard skills to. So that's that's pretty hard. (laughs) Absolutely. On the designer side, you see some things that don't necessarily have as much of a pull. So you'll see, you know, in this diagram, visual design, interaction design, journey mapping, user modeling. And so, you know, we we mentioned journey mapping is something that PMs do do often. They might not call it that, um, but sometimes you'll, you you know, you'll hear it as customer journey or something like that. Um, And so what you realize is that there's actually overlap on all of these things, but the role isn't necessarily the same. And so a PM absolutely influences visual design. They might not be in Sketch doing the design. Sometimes they are. Some PMs are now with, with tools like Figma and others. They're absolutely there, you know, working on smaller smaller parts. Um, but things like interaction design. I've had a lot of discussions with PMs about how a dropdown should work. You know, a lot of aspects of interaction design. And so I think what's happening is that there's almost an exact overlap between the things a UX designer or a product designer does with a PM. So there's an exact overlap between the tasks and how both of them participate. But maybe there's still a difference in terms of who leads it or who does the exact IC work. What do you think? Yeah, I think that that's probably reasonable. And it's also the perspective they're bringing to it, right? So the the, you know, the humble product manager in Figma, I mean, hopefully they don't spend too much time in those tools because that would be kind of weird, but like, but, but the humble product manager might be thinking about, uh, you know, offering the appropriate type of feedback in that situation. Right. And then the, the humble designer, I I mean, I was going to use the example, like designers should be involved in pricing design. They should totally be involved because they're like master systems thinkers. They know how to do ethnographic research. They know how to build like mental models for interactions and experience. They should absolutely be involved in, uh, you know, pricing design. And, but, but if you're skilled at what you do, you kind of know your weaknesses and strengths and, and you, you're humble, <laughs> right? When you offer certain bits of feedback. When you get these cross-functional teams working so closely together, you become familiar with all the hats that people wear. And so part of it really, part of the skill here is understanding about what you're you're able to give uh, useful feedback about what context you have that the other person might not have. And then also when to step back and like kind of let people do their work, right? So... I think that the messy overlap or the kind of the messiness or the beautiful mess or whatever is very, uh, is a very apt description of what's happening. But I think that the, and and I think people do become increasingly sort of T-shaped in these particular settings. But I think that when you see teams that are really clicking, you see like a mutual respect that is born by working so closely together. And so you see people really respecting the strong skills that the other folks bring in and inviting feedback. And it's just kind of a beautiful thing to watch. Like I think, you know, maybe thinking about how I would wrap this whole discussion up in my head is that that it, when when teams have respect for each other, when team members have respect for each other's craft, and there's this collective craft of what it's like when all the people work together. Like you can have musicians who are good at their particular instruments, but when they create a band, they create music. That's what you're looking for. I'm not, I know how to, I know what a good drum beat sounds like, but I can't actually play the drums. Right. So anyway, that, that's kind of my, my pontificating on it. Like there's something really beautiful here when, when it all falls into place. I definitely agree. 
the way I've articulated in the past is, you know, to your point about things people bring to the table, um, the contributions they make, kind of the expertise they own. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, if you have a healthy team, you're wanting to pull people in. But what are you pulling them in for? You know, the analogy I've used in the past is that the PM ultimately owns the problem space. That doesn't mean they're choosing the exact configuration of problems or they're not necessarily the one that's articulating exactly the problem. But they own the problem space in the sense that they understand the key problems for the business and kind of how they relate to each other. The designer owns the solution space. Ultimately, the designer is materializing how a solution should play. And so the best designers I've seen, they don't just offer one solution or a few or one solution with you know a few iterations. They explore the solution space. And so you know maybe we'll go into this deeper in another episode, but then the engineer ultimately owns the solution because they're building it. They're making the trade-offs about speed and how things actually function. And, you know, they're setting the constraints of what it can do in the future based on how it's coded. And so ultimately, everybody's working together knowing what they bring to the table. And I know these are kind of blurry definitions. You know, maybe we can go into this deeper. But when everybody knows kind of the area they work on, then when they come together, they can, as a team, understand, you know, the optimal point where they all kind of bring it together. What do you think about John? Does that make sense? Well, you know, I mean, the only the only caveat there I would say is that a lot of the designers I know are incredibly good at exploring the problem space. And some of the PMs I know are actually whatever have some sixth sense about, you know, where there's potential solutions to the problem. So, I mean, I, I guess the only caveat I have there is that great teams figure it out and the work is messy. You know, like every problem is a nested solution to a higher level problem. I think that what you see in great teams is that they they fall into a kind of a natural rhythm versus any kind of enforced rhythm. So so what I like about what you said is that imagine a scenario where the team, the org structure and the process documents all dictate who owns what. That's not going to build the mutual respect that you need to be able to make great stuff. What's going to build a mutual respect is day in, day out, working together and finding your groove. And frankly, the groove could change. The next effort might require more of the way the designer thinks about problem exploration than the PM thinks about problem exploration. So although I resist like the hard boundaries, I think the idea of like people, people slipping into their like natural groove is something I can very much support. Totally. Totally. I think there's a lot more there to dive into in another episode. Um, you know, why don't we just skip that kind of fun thing we do at the end? I'd love to hear on Twitter if people actually miss that and want that back. That's but... our experiment for the day to, to, to skip that. <laughs> yeah, but just by not having it. <laughs> um, because I think we talked about a lot of important things. And, you know, I don't want to cut down on anything we've already said. I think there's a lot of good content uh, to discuss. On the other end, I don't want this episode to be like an hour and a half. So, Let's call it there. And um, again, you know, we want to hear what you guys think on Twitter. Are these conversations helpful and in what way? So um, reach out and, uh, you know, we'd love to be in touch. Great. Good. Uh, you know, I'll see you soon, Tark. All right. Thanks, John. Take Great. care.